Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. In terms of immortality, what would be the age you would like to be stuck at? All right, you go. You go first. I would say somewhere in my 30s. Really? Yeah. I didn't like 20s. Teenage years were fine, but I didn't know anything. And then 30s was where I was like, I stopped caring about the things that I wasn't supposed to care about and started caring about the things I did. So some some place in there, I think, would be great. I, I'm still sticking with 18. I think 17 is too young. And so maybe like exactly between 18 and 20, somewhere in between there, like whenever I okay. feel ready. But then again, I haven't lived much life. I'm like only 24 right now. So we'll see how I feel about my 30s when I get there. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think you have a lot to look forward to. Oh, great. I am I thought it was all downhill from here. So that's great nope. to hear. I feel like that's what I always heard from people who were, you know, even nearing 40. Or it's like, oh, what I would give to be in my 20s again. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I never want to go back there. <laughs> Well, I probably won't either, considering I'm in a quarantine throughout a good chunk of a year of it. <laughs> You're like, Let's go back to 2020 when we were all stuck in our closets recording podcasts. That was a great time. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking Tuck Everlasting because our listener, Rachel, requested it. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Rachel. We love you. Thank you for uh, requesting the show that we might not be talking about without you. So, listeners, you are important. Joining me in my first long-distance episode... What? Ooh, Corona episode two. <laughs> <laughs> is Mr. Jesse McAnally... Mac- oh, shoot. See, I messed it up. Is Jesse McAnally. I don't know why I... It's spelled McAnally. It's really bad. <laughs> I know it. Everyone knows it. It's the I first say- thought anyone gets. <laughs> it was Substitute teachers did it for years. It's fine. I oh. get it. It's weird looking. I, I Just live up to it. Own it. It's, it's McAnally. Looks like McAnally. McAnally. It's Jesse McAnally, everybody, from me. from the podcast Musicals with Cheese. I'm so grateful you're on. I'm sorry. I really don't know anything about you. Um. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine. Did you go to college? And if so, did you study musical theater like a crazy person like me? No, I studied film. I was lame. I was the oh, lamest person. Whatever. There's money in film. <laughs> and that is what is paying my bills currently so i yes. i guess i i lucked out there but i i i made musical theater content into films so oh, i cute. Like, wrote musical numbers and filmed it and all that and that was a lot of my thesis work yeah oh my gosh that's cool now i wanted to ask you a question because when we were talking about what show to t- to discuss and tuck everlasting came up you wrote this quote I've been dying to talk about Tuck, but I don't think it would suit my show well. Please explain yourself. <laughs> why have you been dying to talk about it? And why wouldn't it suit your show well? My show is mostly about getting my co-host's reaction to musical theater. And this is like, 
the most musical theater, like almost kind of cookie cutter musical theater thing. And the things I want to talk about are very specific things that he would laugh at me for. At this point, because you guys have been going for a long time, (laughs) at this point, is he still anti-musical theater? Because I feel like he has to have been won over. Otherwise, he'd go screaming, running from the building. The thing is, I consider anyone that doesn't listen to it for pleasure anti-musical theater. (laughs) If there's a long road trip and you're not okay with a double disc (laughs) cast album to keep you company, you're anti-musical theater. Exactly. (laughs) So he was never really even anti. He just hadn't listened to any of it. And I was like, well, we got to change that, don't we? Well, I would say that there are plenty of people within the musical theater world that that might have a lot in common with him. I find a lot, especially in like the tumblerization of musical theater, where it's like, if Wicked is your favorite musical, don't even talk to me. And it becomes a very high and mighty, like, if you like this, then we can't be friends. And like, there's a reason why Les Miserables is more high art than Be More Chill, and that is more high art than Hamilton, and ah, blah, 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 blah. And having to find these obscure musicals that you like better just because they aren't the mainstream thing. And I feel that is more common in musical theater than anything else, which is why with my show, I'm really big on like, hey, anyone can get into this and anyone can enjoy the good things and the bad things and all together. There's um, no snobbery, so to say. Uh, Speaking of elitism in in art forms, I got to say that I've been to a, a few parties out here in Los Angeles where... I'll get talking about film with somebody and it will kind of go along the same lines that we're talking about with theater, which is, oh, you like Alfred Hitchcock? What's your favorite Hitchcock film? And don't say Psycho. And it's like, why not? (laughs) Why can't I say Psycho? It is there too. Um, But the thing is with film, it's a lot easier to get a bunch of films than it is to see a bunch of musicals. Yes. That's that's a really great point. Which is that that line between it's like yeah wicked can be your favorite musical because that's the only musical that's coming to oklahoma or wherever you are (laughs) and that was an emotional experience not everyone's gonna see the falsettos tour some musicals i love i never even got to experience in full like parade is one of my favorite musicals of all time and i have never seen a live production of parade outside of like clips bootlegs and all that other nonsense and that is really yeah i know really sad right my gosh I saw it with T.R. Knight out here at, at the Mark Taper Forum, which was that... The Donmar Playhouse. Yeah, the Donmar. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And man, is that thing depressing. <laughs> it's great. It's there, it's wonderful. There, It is a wonderful musical. There are musicals with really heavy subject matter that don't make you feel terrible walking out, but Parade is not one of them. <laughs> no, it is not. Um, I, and I stand by the fact that it's probably Jason Robert Brown's one good musical. Ooh. Yeah, really? that's a take, guys. Uh, I realized that maybe I should give you a quick tour of my closet because that's where I'm recording currently. Behind me is, are my ties. I have a lot of ties. That is a lot of ties. Right here. Oh, my God. <laughs> As an LDS missionary, you're only allowed to really show personality through the ties you wear. And so I collected quite a few. Oh, my gosh. And, you're you're, and, you're a Latter-day Saint? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, have I swore yet? I swear so badly. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fine. Okay. You're fine. I've already told my mom that if the episode has a little E next to it, you don't have to listen to that. (laughs) So welcome to my closet. Today, though, we're talking about Tuck Everlasting, which is first and foremost a children's novel written in 1975 by Natalie Babbitt. 
Uh, it's considered one of the best books for children. It's on all of those lists. I would describe it as like Anne of Green Gables meets Bridge to Terabithia. Like you're in this kind of romanticized time of Americana history in the North, but then there's a magic element to it. Did you ever read this book growing up? Um, I did very, very young. I barely remember it aside did from you the really? ending. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely did not. Did you have favorite books growing up, though? Like, specifically children's novels, I should say? See, I didn't get into reading as much. Like, I didn't read for pleasure until I got much older, and mostly I read nonfiction nowadays. So I didn't have a big children's You're a film guy. Yeah, I'm, I'm lame is what I'm saying. No, that's not lame at all. <laughs> I was always really into the Newbery Medal Honors. I don't know. I was always obsessed with, like, awards. <laughs> Tony Awards, Academy Awards. As soon as you and saw so that medal would, on there. Yes, I'm like, oh, you guys, I gotta. But I never got into Tuck Everlasting. I actually had never heard of it until the musical, to be honest. You didn't watch the Gilmore be- Girl, Girl spinoff movie? See, this is where the mission comes back in as well, because the they did a film version in 2002 with Alexis Bedell. Actually, everyone's in that movie. Sissy Spacek, Victor Garber. It's everybody. It's a crazy cast. And I did not see it because I was on my mission in 2002. So there are like these two years of history in the world that I still am playing catch up on. I, I, I don't. I mean, that's a that big time, time to be missing parts of the world. 2001, the world basically ended in 2002 to be me MIA for a bit. Exactly. I was on my mission during 9-11 and we were knocking doors, introducing ourselves to people. And we saw everybody in their homes just watching TV, watching the news, but nobody was answering the door. And we're like, this is weird. What's going on? And then finally we talked to somebody on the street. But yeah, I we still didn't read any newspapers or or watch the news. And so a lot of people have very visceral emotional memories when it comes to 9-11 and I'm I I really don't I just was kind of on the outside looking in I mean I kind of weird I was very young when 9-11 happened I was in kindergarten when it happened so I just remember (laughs) the teachers wanting to turn the tv on and the principal being like don't you turn that on in front of them kids Oh, wow. Interesting. That is my memory of 9-11. Teacher and the principal were fighting in front of you, and you're like, something must have gone down. Yeah, stuff, like, it felt weird. We weren't learning anything. Like, it felt weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I guess the movie happened. It wasn't a flop. It recouped its money, Mm -hmm. its budget back. Uh, Okay, so then fast forward to 2015. The musical gets put together and premieres in Atlanta. And the music is by Chris Miller, lyrics by Nathan Tyson, both of whom had worked on a musical called The Burnt Part Boys, which is kind of a small chamber musical about two boys and this mining accident in a small town. From what I understand, it was pretty well received and also carries with it this folk element to the music that I think everyone thought would be good for this story. Mm -hmm. The book is by Claudia Shear. And also co-written by Tim Fetterly. Now, Claudia Shear wrote Dirty Blonde, right? Have you seen or, or heard of that show? I've heard of it. I have not seen it. It's a cool play. It's a cool small play about a woman who becomes a big fan of Mae West. And then that actress plays both the fan and Mae West oh. at different points throughout the show. It's, it's really interesting and funny and kind of provocative because it's Mae West, of course. So from that point, we have 
you know, music and lyrics by these two guys who have written a very serious musical. We have the book written by a woman who wrote a very complex play that was Tony nominated. Mm-hmm. And th- but that is not what Tuck Everlasting turns into. It's it's a while it has serious themes, it's very much like a a children's novel come to life on stage mm-hmm. it feels very much of the kin of the rogers and hammerstein musical without that crazy dark turn in the second act it's like if the movie had ended with the captain and maria getting married that's the kind of musical i described <laughs> this as. that's interesting i like that it also makes me wonder if when tim federley was brought on he helped sculpt it a little bit more toward a family-friendly experience Mm -hmm. because his canon of work looks very different from everyone else's. After he writes Tuck Everlasting, his career kind of explodes, and he writes the Ferdinand, which is that animated film about the bowl. He's currently working on another animated film with Pasek and Paul of Dear Evan Hansen fame and Greatest Showman, and he's currently showrunner for the high school musical series on Disney Plus. So I almost feel like this is his project. And I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just kind of what I'm feeling. If it didn't start as his project, it became his project. Like down the road and how all the adaptations like Once Upon a Time wasn't Barrett Wilbert Weed supposed to play like Winnie? Like that. Oh, really? Yeah, there's oh, like I didn't some hear that, really that's old interesting. videos of her singing Everlasting, like from years before oh, my... this put on Broadway. And I was like, that was a whole different feel they were going for with that, weren't they? That's Wasn't a it? completely different show. Wow, interesting. Once it all becomes this this cohesive piece that we know it now, it's directed and choreographed by the busiest person on Broadway, Casey Nicola, <laughs> and it opens in Atlanta to, I, I guess, pretty decent reviews. And transfers to Broadway in 2016 and closes after 39 performances. So definitely considered a flop. Now on this podcast, as I've said, the F word is not a bad word. And by F word, I mean flop. Because I do think that we learn a lot, not only about the creative process by looking at flop musicals, but also about the societies in which they didn't succeed. I I, I mean, I guess I'll, I'll open this up to you why do you think it didn't succeed hamilton like that was hamilton fever and on top of that you also have waitress which is a much more well it's a traditional musical it is kind of experimental and you have a really big name attached to it with sarah Bareilles and all that and while right. i don't think this has anything to do with the quality of tuck everlasting because i i think it's great i think it's fabulous um i think that waitress and hamilton just sucked all the air out of it and then this is just floating in the breeze with no one in the seats. Yeah. Let's just look at the Tony Award nominees for Best Musical that year. Mm-hmm. You had Hamilton, which of course won. You have Bright Star, which is another folk musical, but written by uh, Edie Brickell and Steve Martin. Big name. Yeah, exactly. Big name. You have School of Rock, which is both a movie and has Andrew Lloyd Webber attached. You have Shuffle Along, George C. Wolfe directed, Audra McDonald starring in. And then you have Waitress with Sarah Bareilles. That's a pretty starry list of best musical nominees. It's pretty impressive. And I would say that where maybe Tuck Everlasting misses the boat a little bit is that Waitress was smart enough to be small. And Bright Star was smart enough to be big, but justified in its ensemble and movement. And then Tuck Everlasting kind of falls in the middle of that. 
it's neither small enough to be an intimate theater experience, but it's also not big enough to be as splashy as I think they were advertising it to be. It's still at the heart, this quiet story about a girl facing an existential crisis. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're not wrong. And I don't think the name recognition, I know that's a really dumb like movie branding type thing to say, but it is important. Even something like that's based on a children's book, like Matilda yeah. has that kind of brand recognition yeah, and all that. Absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think Tuck Everlasting is a horrible title. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. What It tells you nothing about this. And it makes me think of Puck, like Midsummer Night's Dream. And so then mm-hmm. for the longest time, I thought, oh, the main boy, his name is Tuck. And you're like, no, that's not it. It's their last name. <laughs> but Everlasting is a great name for a song. Amen. And it's a great song. What well, if they had just called it Everlasting? Oh. Like, <gasps> it could we have just... still been a... We just solved all of their problems. (laughs) (laughs) I would see a musical called Everlasting. Everlasting. Good musical title. Exclamation point. Just throwing it out there. Question (laughs) mark. Everlasting exclamation point colon a new musical. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Perfect. Solved all your problems. Ridiculous. Where did it play? Do you remember like what theater it was in or anything? I didn't look that up. Well, let's take a look um, at the Broadhurst Theater. Oh, okay. It's not a terrible place for it. No, no. It closed before the Tonys, even. Yeah. Wow, this was a because it got a big old mess. It only got one Tony nomination, which was for costuming. Shout out to Greg. That's unfair. Shout out to Greg Barnes. But it was just a really crowded season because even if even if it didn't get the best musical nods you still got all of the competition from the revivals, which was also incredibly starry. Like, She Loves Me and... Um, color Purple. Color Purple, exactly. When there's not enough room for Carolee Carmelo in the supporting actress category, you know it's a busy year. And then you also have just the stuff that's always on Broadway, like Lion King, Phantom, all right. that stuff. Right. That's just going to take away like the tourist's mindset. Exactly. What do you think about this idea that... Sometimes musicals go to Broadway not to be successes, but to at least get a big enough profile that they are then performed in community theaters or high schools. I think that's true. Like things for like Big Fish feel right for that, and Beetlejuice before that became what it was. I felt was going to be very akin to that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes with shows like this, you're like, well, at least it'll be out there. We'll get a cast album. And mm-hmm. maybe through the royalties, we'll make some money off of it in the long run. Because, I, I mean, let's be honest, theater is kind of a long game anyway. What's a couple more years to wait to see if it starts getting produced locally? As an author, I think I might tend to look at things like that. Let's talk as an author now. Let's actually talk about content. Great. Like, I'm very... This is a very strange musical to me. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts out with a prologue in which we meet all of the characters, right? Mm. And the through line through which they all are connected through this song is that they feel stagnant in their lives and they're constantly asking, is this what it's going to be forever? Their present is, I don't know, so blah that it feels like forever. And for some people, it's it's more literal than others. Right, fair enough. So after this prologue, then we start meeting the characters by name. 
First and foremost is Miss Winnie Foster, who's 11 years old. She's a good girl. She's 11, but she wants to raise something other than a little bit of heaven. And it it bothers her because her, her father died recently, and so her mother's got her on a real tight leash. Like, you can't go anywhere. I don't want you dying. Exactly. They're all wearing black because you have to wear black for a year, like mother in ragtime. And she just wants to go to the fair, which is this big event that's come to their small town. Where do you think we're at? Are we like Connecticut? We're like uh, New up- Hampshire. New Hampshire. Thank you. So we're in New Hampshire in the turn of the century, maybe a little bit earlier. Now, this opening song sounds a lot to me like the opening of Frozen. I was going to say the same thing. The, the same high damn high thing. High high high. <laughs> Anytime it comes up in my shuffle, I'm like, oh, I didn't remember putting Frozen on here. Oh, it's Tuck. Oh, it's it's Tuck Everlasting. What is that? Is it just like this Celtic influence? Because it's, I mean, it seems like a very Irish, white Irish community. Sounds like come from a ways, like like Canadian. Oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Trying to go into some, like I said, Anna Green Gables territory. Nova Scotia. So we got Winnie, we got her mom, who is in mourning. We got grandma, who's feisty. Mm-hmm. All three of these women, though, are pretty well-drawn characters. I think we can give that to Claudia Shear. And 100%. Winnie has also found a toad. And this toad ha- has become her friend. Her mother is disgusted and says, you take that out right now. And Winnie's like, great, because now at least I get to go outside. So she goes. I think it's just like this most ridiculous toad puppet. Like, that's worth bringing up. They just kind of fling it around on a stick. It is the goofiest looking piece of theater. Like, Julie Taymor, this is not. No, it might as well have been a toad piggy bank that, <laughs> <laughs> that you get at like an antique store. So she's, she's carrying this toad back into, you know, into the woods, which, oh, the family, the foster family owns the woods. They own this property. Mm-hmm. And so it's private property. She's going through their woods. While she's in there, she meets this kid, quote unquote, Jesse Tuck. Now, Jesse looks to be about 17. So he's a couple years older than Winnie. And they immediately hit it off because they're both in search of adventure. And they are at this tree Next to the tree is this spring, this fountain of water. And Winnie sees Jesse drinking from the fountain and she tries to drink from it. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. This isn't for you. But let's climb a tree. And so then they (laughs) climb a tree. (laughs) And they go to the top, to the top, to the top of the world. And this, I feel, is supposed to be like the hit, the earworm of the show. I mean, it's either this or everlasting, like... Which I don't know which one is more marketable. I yes. yes. I think it's just this one is promoting Andrew Keenan Bolger, who is adorbs. He is adorbs. And spoiler alert, this show is about immortality and drinking a magic potion that lets you live forever. And do we believe that the uh, whole Keenan Bolger family has participated in this ritual? Because none of them are getting older. <laughs> no, that's just the water from being raised in Michigan. <laughs> Is it? It's a Michigan thing. It's I a Michigan it. thing. <laughs> Adorable. Um, so th- they climb this tree, which I think 
it's one of these things that I think is going to keep it from being produced locally is like now you've given every community theater the problem of figuring out how to stage an entire song while climbing a tree. Well, you could do the usual stage theater, have a kid dressed up as a tree and just have them like stand on his back. It loses none of the magic for me. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. It's a great it's a great tune, though. So they Mm. are forever connected, I guess, because they climbed a tree together. Can I ask a question about this romance here? Do you get the heebie-jeebies from it? Because <laughs> I do. I 100% when you, do. When you think about it too long, it's absolutely disgusting. Like, it's, it feels like child grooming to a certain point where he's like, at the end of Act 1, spoilers, folks. He's like, if you drink this, you could be my wife. And I'm like, she's 11, stop this, please, you 100-year-old yeah. man. He's not actually 17. He's over 100 years old. So the and fact I'm... that he sees this girl and is like, hey, I see my future. <laughs> <laughs> they found an even creepier version of the Edward and Bella plot. Ah, oh my gosh, you're so At right. least Bella was the age of consent. Uh, I don't, this 11 year old, no. Oh man. Just Ugh, drink is... this and don't tell your parents is basically what he's asking her to do. It's inappropriate, you guys. Don't ever ask children under the age of 16 to drink magic potions to make them live forever. <laughs> It's not 16 is our cutoff age. 16 is the cutoff age. <laughs> but yeah, that's like uh, a big driving force in this story, and it just makes me feel uncomfortable to think about. Here's the thing, though. When does the romance start? Does it start here? Because there's no way an 11-year-old girl, all she wants to do is get out of the house, meets this boy and feels the butterflies. I don't buy that. It and starts in Partner I, in Crime. That, that So not until the end of the first act is when, like, romance starts budding. Yes. As soon as she gets so the full context of it and she's like, oh, live forever, young boy forever, young girl forever, partner in crime, see the world. Oh, problematic. So, but at this point, they're just friends, right? Yeah. I just, I want to live in this friend land as long as I can before I face the inevitable. <laughs> So Jesse has this big mouth and spills the secret, his family's secret, which is one day they were many, many years ago, were walking through the woods, got thirsty, drank some water from the spring. And then from that point on, they stopped aging. So they literally found the fountain of youth. They drank from it. And now every 10 years, because it's been like 85 years, every 10 years they get together to reconnect as a family because they can't stay together or it draws too much attention from people in the townships or wherever they might be staying. So they split up and then come together every 10 years. So he's on his way back to meet with the family. He meets Winnie. He spills the secret about the fountain, doesn't let her drink from it, but then realizes the only way to kind of control the secret is to kidnap her. (laughs) A I couldn't plus. even say it. I couldn't even get through it. It's so um so he kidnaps her, this poor girl, and takes her to the home. Now at the home is Mama Tuck, Papa Tuck, and Brother Tuck. Mm-hmm. They all have their own stuff going on. Mama Tuck and Papa Tuck are kind of facing what I think most marriages face. <laughs> This idea of trying to keep things fresh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the most interesting storyline is actually the brother. I 100% agree. Who was married, had a child, and then they kind of 
left him because he freaked them out. They were getting older. He wasn't. So, so they left. Yeah, they freaked out because they thought he was possessed, thought he was a devil, and they just, they feared the unknown, and then they just right. ran away. And he couldn't, he didn't know what caused his eternal life at this point, which at that is point, another question, right. like, when did he find out about that? But that doesn't matter. So his child and his wife left him and grew well beyond him, and he's stuck with the same damn family, same annoying brother, same mm-hmm. life he's always lived, and he's just sad and broken from it yeah sad and broken that's the best way to describe him but since he's the only one that had to bring in the responsibility that is the reason why he is the more adult between the brothers and i think that's the reason why jesse still comes off as a 17 year old because he's lived his life like free fallen like a hippie and hasn't had to take on responsibilities (laughs) right At, at forever stuck at 17 you're not going to settle down and get married it's weird how age is not defined by experience but a number. Like I, changes to your personality aren't affected by what you experience, but how old you get and how you mature, which is strange to me. Like to deal with in my head. Well, but here's the thing: Would a 17 year old start acting like anything other than a 17 year old if everyone around him is constantly? treating him like he's a 17-year-old because that's how he looks. Right, fair enough. I mean... And he can't exactly say, I'm older than I look, you guys. Give me some credit because then that botches the secret. So he's kind of just embraced this fact that he's always going to be this age. Um, That makes complete sense. Can we talk about Terrence Mann as the man in the yellow suit? (laughs) Now, enter... The strangest <laughs> villain you've ever encountered in musical theater. <laughs> and that's saying something. King Herod still exists, guys. <laughs> the man is literally called the man in the yellow suit. And that's exactly who he is. He's a man and he wears an all yellow suit. He's kind of this carny type person with the fair right. who is always trying to swindle people and he too is feeling a little stale in his life. He's, I, I think his his own mortality is weighing on him. And he has heard rumors of the Tuck family. He doesn't know if it's true because it's just been myth at this point. But coming into, to, into town with the fair, he's set an intention <laughs> to find them and find if it's true or not. And then if it is true, he can use the fountain of youth to make millions of dollars. He, he's he got it together. Yeah, he has a business plan, guys. The ultimate like capitalist. Any, like any good uh, villain. Now, on Broadway, this was played by none other than the beast, rum-tum tugger himself, Mr. Terrence Mann. Beautiful. Did you see this show? I didn't even ask you. Um, And the most that a bootleg can let you see something, yes. Fair enough. How would you describe Terry's performance? Um, I'm interested. Definitely not small. Um, Every choice he makes is the biggest one he possibly can. It seems like on the page, like if I read this script, he would seem a lot more devious and diabolical, but he plays them just too charmingly that when he does end up like violently getting beaten to death, I'm like, I don't know if he deserved that. (laughs) (laughs) Or you're like, he's just a good small business owner. He has a stupid suit. He dances around like a weirdo, like whatever. Like he deserves to get put in jail maybe, but beaten to death. (laughs) The thing is, is that... 
if you're in an all yellow suit, nuance is kind of thrown out the window, right? At this point, you're just embracing your costume and letting it inform every decision you make as an actor. I, I agree. And it's weird with a show with this much nuance to have such a bombastic big character in there just like, I'm going to entertain you for a bit. Now back to this uh, mental dilemma of whether or not it's okay to to die eventually or to live forever. Which would you prefer? Right. Now back to Terrence Mann dancing. Now along those lines as well, we've got this vaudeville act known as Constable oh, Joe and his deputy Hugo. And they're like, they're the constable and his deputy yeah. of the town. And they're just kind of bumbling idiots. You find out that they're actually father and son. And that seems kind of like a strange detraction as well. I don't like it. That's the one part of the story I actively dislike. I, I really do. I really do feel like this show should have been 90 minutes, no intermission, and you could eliminate 50% of the cast. I agree. But then again, could like that would also feel like it would lessen the impact of one of the most impactful parts of this story to me. Which we'll get to that because it's it makes me cry. Yep, like that part is when I was like this is this is wonderful. No, it what it gets right in this show, it gets better than almost any modern musical I've seen in the past 15 years. The emotional verisimilitude of this show is there. It's just to get there, you gotta trudge through some thumbtacks. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I guess those are all the characters. <clears throat> you can kind of guess what happens, but Winnie goes to you know the house, meets the whole family. She connects with the mom in a way that she hasn't connected with her own mother, and in doing so, brings out something in Mama Tuck, who never had a daughter. She only had these sons. And so they're in the attic, like, looking at all of these different clothes for Winnie to wear. And she finds this dress that reminds her of the moment that her husband proposed to her. And she has this beautiful song um, called, like, The Best the best Day of My Life, something like that. The most perfect moment? I th- most beautiful day. Most beautiful day. So it, it, it sparks something within her to reconnect with her husband. I guess we can just talk about how like Winnie, Winnie helps each of the members of the family. She helps them deal with their individual baggage, except for Jesse, who has to have time with his baggage. Yeah, right? Uh, she talks to Miles, the brother, who you know has experienced his great loss with his own family by talking about how her father has passed and that she misses him every day, but it doesn't mean that she'll ever love him any less. And that gives him a degree of courage and hope. And that's also a difference from the original story and the film. Mm-hmm. Winnie's father was alive in both of those. I really like that touch that that because dad had passed on, she has a gateway into pain and loss that is able to connect with that character specifically. Well, it shows that she's willing to deal with death as a part of life in a way that no one really is. Like the fact is that ties death as a theme and the wheel, the wheel of life. You know, trying to step mm-hmm. sidestep away from saying circle of life, we're gonna call it a wheel. Um, <laughs> like Winnie's already come to terms with that as like, yeah, that's part of life, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't live. Right. I I think that that's probably one of my problems with at least the structure or the story Mm -hmm. is I don't understand why 
Winnie would want to live forever. She hasn't really, if she was more scared of dying or at least had baggage because of the loss of her father or seeing what it did to her mom, any of those things, I might be more interested in whether or not she wants to live forever. Instead, the story that we double down on is her connection with Jesse. And like we said previously, that's just gross. Yep, it's it's really weird. And they try try to play um <laughs> um Andrew Keaton Bulger as like wide eyed kid as he can, like, oh gee, it's Winnie, we mm-hmm. got this and it's gonna be great. But you're still a grown man that's still a child. And I'm thinking Which makes if it they even had, weirder. Yes, and I think if they had aged Winnie up a little bit, maybe like four or five years, that wouldn't be as bad, but Ooh, that's a good note. Make her sixteen instead of eleven. Yeah. Uh, but th- th- that would also cause my biggest problem. Like, I think the reason why the show works so well for me is the performance of Sarah Charles Lewis. I think she oh, really? is brilliant in that lead role. Oh, that's so sweet to hear. I love that. And I why, don't how think so? anyone else. I think she plays it wide-eyed but not doughy. She doesn't feel like a child model, like, trying to play around. Um I relate this a lot to Fun Home, where Sidney mm-hmm. Lucas was just so brilliant in that initial role, but then you get some of the replacements and some of the other people, and they play it like they're in a Gap commercial, yeah. and she does not. She actively does not. She plays a very... She's happy, but not cheesy. Right. Professional kids are... It's a difficult line to toe, for sure. Mm-hmm. How much How much of a dancer is Miss Sarah? That's another weird part of the story. Dance doesn't play a big role in this entire show up until that moment. Until so that feels the like, very end, yeah. Yeah, and in that she dances minimally like with her other incarnations of herself, which she mm-hmm. does fine and admirably. But before that, like the only dancing is Terrence Mann acting weird. <laughs> That's interesting. I have some thoughts about that for later. So Jesse and Winnie decide to go to the fair. Mm-hmm. They disguise her in boys' clothes because at this point the constable and the deputy are looking for her because the mom has said that she's missing. So they go to the fair in disguise. The man in the yellow suit has like an interaction with them and Jesse forces him to stab him. (laughs) Bet you won't do it. Which then proves that he's immortal and then the man in the yellow suit is like, I know! They exist. <laughs> and and that's the end of Act One. Now, I know I rushed through that, but for being a long show, some of these plot twists feel very abrupt to me. And I agree with you completely. It feels like they're trying to race through the big plots so they can get to the numbers and the emotional, like, I had a farmhouse with a grandfather clock moments, you know? Yes. Yeah, because for every weird moment where Terrence Mann is, you know, dancing around in his yellow suit, (laughs) there is an incredibly still moment in which one of the Tuck family is revealing their inner life in an incredibly vulnerable way. It feels like the songs are more confident for what the show wants to be than the book is, is where I sit with it. So act two starts. I don't remember this number at all. Can you tell me? Oh, no, this is Terrence man's right this is yes. man in the yellow suit singing a song about being golden in a yellow suit no nuance it, it, lost there it writes itself guys it like. really does also in the second act is this great moment with her and the the father 
Papatuck, and they're going fishing. And I think they're both getting something out of it because she is able to be with a dad. And he is, you know, uh, I think there are moments in life where we teach ourselves by teaching others. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is his moment where he is able to impart his wisdom on her and in doing so reminds himself of what he needs to do in his life, particularly with his marriage. But within this little number that they have while they're fishing is basically any Pinterest quote Instagrammable moment <laughs> <laughs> that you would ever want. You can't have living without dying, so you can't call this living deep don't be afraid of death be afraid of never feeling truly alive you don't need to live forever you just need to live like one of those would be enough for one song and one song has all three yes i this is probably like uh, tied with time as my favorite song in the entire show Mm -hmm. like as beautiful as everlasting is this one is like really important like thematically like it goes into the theme of hashtag not trademark circle of life the wheel yeah it's beautiful it is a beautiful beautiful song then things continue the man in the yellow suit things continue the man in the yellow suit ends up finding the family they're all i'm I'm just skipping right to the end the uh (laughs) there's not much that happens in act two there's no there's really not going on there's a, there is a lot of character stuff, but and it's 55 minutes, but I can literally skip to the end where they're all at the tree, you know, with the fountain and the man in the yellow suit, man in the yellow hat. I'm like, no, this is not Curious George. The, <laughs> the man in the yellow suit is threatening the family and they're like, you can't do anything to us. You can't kill us. And he's like, yeah, but I can kill her. And he grabs... Miss Winnie Foster, and so now he's holding her hostage until they tell him how to live forever. And then Mama Tuck takes a big old rifle and just full on beats him to like, death right in the spinal like, cord, <laughs> like once upon a time in Hollywood, just full on <laughs> takes out all of her year 85 years of aggression. <laughs> And that is when the constable and the deputy show up and they're like, there's the dead man. He's wearing a yellow suit. And Winnie's like, no, she didn't do it. I did it. She's trying to protect me. Kind of alluding to the fact that he had kidnapped her. He was mm-hmm. the one who kidnapped her. And the constable has no reason to not believe her. So she gets off on self-defense and the Tuck There's a really good good joke in here though like i want to oh what is this. it um just because it made me laugh and i don't laugh easily it's when he's like she's like oh no i'd probably go to jail he's like nope there'd probably be a hanging and then miles is like no there won't <laughs> and i'm like all right that's cute <laughs> it's cute it's cute now the tuck family needs to go their separate ways Jesse wants winnie to drink the water to live forever when she becomes 17 so then they can get married and live together forever and so she's kind of left with this huge question should i live forever she goes home and sees the toad and she puts the water on the toad and decides 
that no, she needs to to live her life and only her life. See, that doesn't come off as a decision or an active choice because she literally says, like, I can always get some more later. Oh, really? Does it not come off that way? Yeah, she says that word like, hey, I can always get some more later. Don't worry. Here you go, Toad. And I'm like, what? Oh, that's stupid. <laughs> Make that the, the, like, the big moment. It doesn't come off as a like a song like they should be in a different place than they were when they started. And she just got done singing the whole everlasting song, right? Like we and said, which is a great tune, and it's all about what is lasting, what needs to die, what is what is life really. So from there, since she decides not to take the water, comes I think the most beautiful part of the show, easily the most beautiful part of the show, which 100%. is which is a ballet. It's a ballet of what her life is from that moment. Her growing up, her actually marrying the deputy kid. They have a child. The child grows up. Uh, Along the way, she loses her grandma. She loses her mother. Her child gets married. She's able to watch that. She loses her husband. And then ultimately, she passes away. And I have never... I mean, not since like the days of Rodgers and Hammerstein, kind of like you said, has a dream ballet been so impactful. And in fact, I might say it's even more impactful than the dream ballets from Rodgers and Hammerstein's days. I was about to describe it as if the dream ballet from Carousel actually had some meaning behind it. Yeah, right, right. That had a deep soul to it. To see all of this expressed through dance is the perfect vehicle for at least reaching me as an audience, and I'm glad to hear it's the same for you. Mm-hmm. Like that was the moment where I was like, "All right," as soon as, like because it kind of hedges it. Like you know where it's going as soon as like that music cue starts, and you're like, "Just, just lay it on me," and like yeah, it's okay, just here so it comes. perfectly, beautifully done. And I wish the rest of the show lived up to as great as this moment was, is kind of how I feel. Which then kind of comes to what you were saying earlier. Why is the language of dance so essential to this show and yet only found within the last 10 minutes? I 100% agree. This is the only part where dance is like really reflected. And the director um, was also the choreographer of this. like um, Right. And so it really should be ingrained in there in the same way that Susan Stroman ingrains dance and usually all of her pieces. But mm-hmm. it just isn't. And I feel like that came a lot with the rewrites to make it a little bit more child-friendly and lowering mm-hmm. the age of Winnie, likely. Possibly. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a missed opportunity for sure. As beautiful as that moment is, it, there's there's very little setup for that kind of device in the rest of the show. The closest we get to it is maybe the mother remembering the time that she was proposed to. Flashbacks. That is another time when the choreography really shines. It's like in time you have a little bit of flashbacks with the kid and the actor portraying the dad, but it's not nearly as intensive as this scene is. Like it's general stuff it's not like as impressive and then my question remains can you keep this part of the show which is far and away the best thing in the entire show and have a smaller cast oh my gosh you could try to do like real fast old lady makeup or just have a really nice ensemble willing to hop in for a bit because otherwise it is a thankless ensemble yes it is there is nothing 
But I can't stress it enough. These 10 minutes are the most beautiful thing in the whole show and one of the most touching things I've seen in the last 15 years of musical theater. I'd say it's probably one of the more emotional parts of that entire Broadway season. Like, I'd put it within the top three. Agreed. Like, I can't even... gave me chills. I can't even think of a thing that tops that for me, like, personally. Like, Hamilton's great, but, like, am I really going to be sobbing during It's Quiet Uptown? Right. Yeah, Hamilton's great. I think that Bright Star is incredibly emotional to me. I can't wait to listen Um, to it. I'm always excited for a new musical to listen to, so you've convinced me I'm going to do that now that the world's ending and I'm trapped inside all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to Bright Star! Um, (laughs) It'll brighten up your day! (laughs) And, And so the show then ends with Winnie dying as part of the wheel, this great wheel of life. And her gravestone is by the tree. Mm-hmm. And and now we're led to believe that now it's like 2015. It's We're now in modern day. The Tuck family has come to pay their respects like they do every 10 years at the grave of Winnie Foster, who taught them about living, maybe more so than they had ever learned from living forever. And they seem to have mended all their broken relationships, the broken pieces. Like um, Papa Tuck and Mama Tuck seem a lot happier. The brothers are a lot more friendly to each other. They seem to have mended fences. For sure. And at least from their point of view, they have Miss Winnie to thank. And that toad. The toad that was the domino (laughs) that fell everywhere. And then Andrew Keenan Bolger just shoves it into his knapsack and then waltzes off into the sunset. It's like the producers, but instead of Bialystok and Bloom, it's Andrew Keenan Bolger and the Toad. <laughs> yes. Um, did did the Toad ever get a name, or did she just call it Toad? Just Toad. The most important character in a musical to never have a name <laughs> is this Toad. Uh, even Milky White had a name, guys. It wasn't a good Thank name. Thank you. It was a name. And that's Tuck Everlasting. It's a show it's a show that is very sweet and I think that if you have grown up with children's literature this show is your jam. One of the best things about musical theater that really separates it from any other medium is it is malleable. You can change it and keep on changing it and keep on fixing it. Like look at Jesus Christ Superstar. They knew those lyrics were bad when they do it. They just keep changing it with every new just version. Keep changing them. Absolutely. You're totally Heathers right. Heather's too. Heather's too. Like that keeps adapting and changing with every new production that's on and I think they're closer and closer to get something really great with each one. What I love about this show is that most American stories that really represent old school Americana are usually tied to the American dream. Beware the pursuit of riches because it might distract you from what really matters. And what Tuck Everlasting does, while it has elements of that, is actually willing to go to an existential place and really talk about what life is. And those are my favorite pieces of American literature and American storytelling because so often we are focused on economy and the kind of the here and now and our our wants and needs without really calling into question any of the the greater questions of of our existence here and this show is willing to do that and still at the same time feel very much a part of our country and our history and our society 
And so I, I really applaud it for that. I think Everlasting should be the New Hampshire National Anthem. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> Everlasting exclamation point. I still um, want the a new musical. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much for uh, for talking about Tuck with me today. This is a lot of fun. I was so glad to have an excuse to talk about this show because it is an anomaly in Broadway, a huge flop that isn't bad. Right. No, it's not bad. There are some things that are inexplicable, uh, <laughs> but it should be done, and I think there's it a, will be. I mean, there's a lot of flawed Broadway shows that are popular. Look at Rent. <laughs> right. And also, I think that being a flop on Broadway nowadays feels different to me than when I got my, you know, Ken Mandelbaum flop book back in the early 90s. I mean, I was able to research Tug Everlasting just fine because the cast albums on Spotify, all of the rehearsal footage from press preview is on YouTube through Broadway.com. You know, they're all of Hashtag the commercials. Hashtag bootleg so I... life. <laughs> right? Bootlegs. I think it's much easier for flops to remain in the consciousness of our culture and certainly our art form now than they ever were in the in the past. And I'm grateful for that because there are always great things to be found within them, even if they were, you know, considered financial failures. Art isn't really it shouldn't be a matter of the bottom line, but it is, honestly, and that's the sad part. Um, but yeah, we shouldn't forget these things. That's whether or not we forget them. That's really important. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's part of theater too, right? Because whether or not people get to see a show is dependent on whether it's produced where they are, kind of like you said. Sometimes I wonder if these types of musicals like Tuck Everlasting might have an even greater reach than something like Passing Strange, which was critically acclaimed, but will never be produced, you know, locally. Or like the Scottsboro um, Boys, which I feel very yeah. similar about. Yeah, exactly. Shows that are incredible, but who's going to ever mount one? Uh, Can't wait to see for... the high school production of Parade. Oh, boy. Think about those old Red Hills, little children. <laughs> uh, as always, if you have any shows that you would like us to cover here on a musical theater podcast, like our friend Rachel... Reach out to us at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Tell them to do Camp Rock. <laughs> Don't listen to him. Um, and, then, <laughs> and then be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast for more great content. Jesse, how can we follow you? Um, I'm on Twitter at Jesse McAnally, and my podcast is Musicals with Cheese, which you can find on all podcatchers that you like. Hey, hey. Uh, everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy, and... Uh, Wash your damn hands. <laughs> Wash your hands, and while you're washing your hands, now you have a couple more songs to hum in your brain. Have a great day. You need a partner in crime. Someone <laughs> to take in the view. All right, we're done.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 